Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George Poo, and today I'm super thrilled to welcome someone who's been supporting young entrepreneurs from the very beginning, Danielle Stretchman. Danielle is the founder and managing partner of the 1517 Fund, which supports visionary founders from the start at the pre-seed and C stage. So Danielle, it's super pleasure to meet with you today, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me here, George. Excited to be with you and your listeners. <laughs> Thank you. So before we start, I know there's a big news coming at 1517. And I think for our listeners who are tuning in, I really want you to share the news with them. So what is it? Yeah, absolutely. The news is that we are launching our third fund. Um, we are actually already deploying capital out of it. So myself and my team have been in the in the seat that many founders are often in, which is fundraising. So the way that a venture capital fund works, at least in some cases, you know, uh, is you have to go out and fundraise for your fund mm -hmm. um, and round up capital. And so we've been doing that over the past three months and uh, it's going very, very well. Our third fund will be an $80 million fund. We had set out originally to raise 60 and we raised that so quickly that we said, okay, I guess we'll raise a little bit more money. We, we, we are very, um, you know, true to our mission of staying at being angel and pre-seed level investors very early with people, we don't have the machinations to become some series A fund and um, do these later stage rounds. We really, really believe in being that first check-in and helping people early. And so one of the things you always think about is portfolio construction and can you deploy the capital you have? And um, I'm very happy to say, I think we can definitely deploy 80 more than that. And I start getting a little nervous on, all right, how do we do it? Um, but we're excited to to grow our, you know, our firm really into more of an institution at this point. That's awesome. Uh, let's, so let's dive straight into 1517 because I think it's such a great accomplishment, such great news about the fund three. Uh, and let's talk more Thank about you. the story about, about the fund shortly. Um, but let's start with, uh, you know, the name 1517. Uh, what does it mean and what, what are you trying to, you know? Yeah, so 1517 is the year, uh, the year 1517. And in that year, there was um, the Reformation. And Martin Luther said to the church, hey, I think it's not right that you're telling people that to save their souls, they need to buy an expensive piece of paper called an indulgence. And likewise, we say that nowadays, it's wrong for another institution, higher ed, to say you have to buy this expensive piece of paper to be called an educated person. There's also some, some sort of like technological um, parallels as well, like the printing press was hitting more mass adoption in 1517. And so, you know, um, we don't have a religious focus at 1517, but the idea would be now maybe not anybody, but a lot of people could have their own Bible so that they could have their own access um, you know, to their beliefs instead of having to get it through a figurehead. And likewise, with the internet and with everything going on with boot camps and other types of programs, you can be educated in many different ways. And you don't need um, you don't need higher education to be the the bearer of saying, okay, you know something now. You you can say, I know something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I and I think in the previous section, uh, you mentioned you guys are the first check backing at the angel stage and pre-seed stage. So is that primarily the, the stage you guys are backing? Yes, we we start very, very early. Usually the main check that we write is a 400 k check into a company when they're raising anywhere under $2 million. Um, and for our angel checks, we write anywhere between, 
I would say 50 and 150K to help people start on R&D of a prototype of a, sort of like a deep tech or hardware company in particular. We don't do too many angel checks on the software side just because we feel like it's not really as needed. There's a lot of capital out there for software companies, but there isn't as much um, for people who are, who are building something that has a physical nature to it. Yeah, and I think something that I personally think is very special about 1517 is that you guys are not just backing about software projects. I think, as you said, mm -hmm. deep tech, science tech, those things, even I yep. do not know. I come from a software background. So what is it like yep. at 1517 for that? Oh, gosh, you know, it's funny. We had two investor meetings today, and I don't know if something's in the water, but both investors said, gosh, it sounds like you guys have so much fun. And I was like, yeah, we do, actually. We have a ton of fun because we get to work with people when they're just starting to build something, and they have this idea and this enthusiasm that's really, really infectious. Um, so, uh, recently in fund three, we have backed a young person who is working on a technology, uh, infusion, um, which is obviously a very difficult field, but we are just really excited about the prospect of what this person can build. And I was talking to a friend of mine who has worked at ARPA-E and, um, done quite a bit in fusion himself. And I said, what do you think of this? And he goes, gosh, I'm not sure if it's really ready for a venture investment. It seems a little bit more like a research project. But in my mind, I said, that's good enough for me. Let's do it. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, he, the, what my friend didn't say was, uh, you know, this person's full of it and they have no idea what they're talking about. And, you know, this is this is probably a dangerous person to back. It was more like, OK, it seems really early, but maybe there's something here. Uh, and we loved supporting people at that stage. It's um it's just, it's very invigorating. And what I say is we get to work with really a team with a name and help them turn it into a company. And we've been fortuitous to be able to be a part of and watch the journeys of companies like Luminar and Loom. Uh, Luminar went public last year. They're our company that um, builds the sensors for autonomous driving. They have uh, contracts with Volvo and Mercedes-Benz right now. And it's it's funny, I've never bought a new car, but like when Volvo comes out with the Luminar car, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be like, all right, cool. Like I'm going to have a car with, you know, Luminar built into it and that's going to be amazing. Uh, and then over the pandemic, Loom has really become, you know, like Joe over at Loom, I was talking to him at the beginning of the pandemic and I said, what do you think of all this in, in relation to your company? And for those who don't know, Loom is an asynchronous video tool, but um it's mostly been used in industry. But what Joe said to me at the beginning of the pandemic was, you know, we're really becoming a public service for people. We're a new way for people to communicate. Um, I had students from all over the world contacting me saying, oh, yeah, we're using Loom in our classes now. And, you know, I'm using it with my family and friends and so on. And it's been really interesting to see. So and both of those companies, we've known the founders since they were very young. <coughs> Excuse me. Um you know, and really watch them grow into leaders and then watch them grow their companies. Yeah. And I think first check, especially uh, when, when speaking about first check, I think it's super, super difficult, even for a software project. And I think when it comes to deep tech, uh, something I personally, my experience is that no one really wants to write the first check for those type of companies. So I, I guess I just want to say my, my question is, why are you guys so confident to write that first check? Because it sounds like yeah. it is a high risk. Yes. Yeah, we are very confident to write the first check. And in fact, we very much enjoy it. I think part of our confidence comes from our track record. We have been working with 
you know, founders who don't have college degrees and who are predominantly younger and usually it's their first company for 12 years. And so we have a lot of trust in our process for how to evaluate founders. Um, you know, we really, we really got our sort of training data set, if you will, on working in the Teal Fellowship and not only selecting Teal Fellows, but then working with them. You know, so when you select someone like Vitalik Buterin and then say, gosh, all right, let's see where this goes. And you work with that person over time, you get to learn more and more about their attributes and traits and what makes them great at what they do. And then it makes it it easier, maybe not easy, but easier to spot that same type of trait in other people. And so I think we have a lot of confidence in the traits that we look for. And it's interesting because I, I'm noticing there are more investors who are getting interested in the early stage, but I think they're very uncomfortable doing checks, even if they're not willing to lead, even following into the early stages. Because a lot of times I'll talk with investors who call themselves pre-seed or seed investors and the questions they have for me after we've led around are often, well, how do you think they're going to do X? And I don't have an answer for them. I tell them, and I'm at this point, I'm pretty um, blunt about it. I said, I don't know how they're going to do X. Like, But what I do know is that these people have the traits that we look for in the great people that we have worked with, with the fellowship, like Dylan Field and Laura Deming and mm -hmm. um, Vitalik right. and Ritesh and you know Paul Gu, all these people. Uh, and with 1517, with the great founders that we've back there, like Austin Russell. And so, yeah, I don't know how it's going to happen, but the sense is that this person has the attributes to potentially be able to get there. Now, one of the things I always say about investing is that investors are delusional. I have to believe with my whole heart that every single founder that I back with 1517 money could be the founder that like triples or quadruples our fund. Like it's not even good enough to say this founder will return the fund because if you return a fund, like let like let's say with our fund one it was twenty million dollars, let's say we returned twenty million bucks to our investors, that still means we're a terrible VC. It means like we have just barely done our job. Our job is to really quadruple uh, that money, and so we have to believe that every one of the founders we back and with fund three will back about sixty core positions with those four hundred k checks that every single one of them could do it while also holding the truth that we know that any outcome for any particular company is that it all goes to zero. Mm -hmm. And we always tell our founders this in our onboardings because we want it to, to give them the flexibility and freedom and courage to really swing for the fences and do something big because we're never going to come knocking on the door and say, hey, you know, I wrote that 400K check and I really need it back. That's not our business model. It's not how we work. Mm -hmm. And I think something very interesting I, I, I personally have noticed is that 1517 backs exceptionally young founders, which I, I think in a yep. venture world doesn't happen that much. When people talk about Mark Zuckerberg, but that's about sure. it. So why, why, right. why younger founders for you guys? Yeah, you know, for us, it's not about age. It's more about stage. And we do have that thesis of working with people who don't have a college degree. So we do typically attract people who are in their teens or 20s. And in fact, we just backed our first team where only one person on the team is 18. Everybody else is under 18 years old. Um, so that's been really fun to work with them. Um, but for us, that signal of saying, hey, I'm going to forego school to do this means that that person has a lot of conviction in saying, I think that this is so important. I'm going to go against what other people, my family, my friends say that I should be doing right now. And, and we see that as a positive attribute in founders. And then in addition, um, you know, this isn't true 
of of all this isn't like an age thing but <clears throat> i will say that i think when you're younger you can be more optimistic and more hopeful about what's possible um when you're older and you have more experience you know why certain things won't work mm-hmm. yeah i think i think that's <clears throat> such a, i think that's such a great insight yeah. i think even even with myself being a younger founder i think part of the thing is that i do have a lot of strong convictions about my startup yeah so i can definitely feel uh where you're coming yeah. from there um no, absolutely. Yeah. When I, before starting, um, before even working at the Teal Foundation, it's funny, just before this, I was talking to my friend who I started a charter school with when I was um, 26 years old. And I ran it when I was 28. I was probably one of the youngest school principals out there. <laughs> but I didn't know any better. People kept asking me, why do you want to start a school? And we were like, because we have this mission and we've got this vision for what we want to do. And now I'm like that old person who's like, oh, you want to start a school? It's so hard. Do you have a building yet? Do you have the funding? Like mission and vision is great, but there's all these logistics. Like, so it, it's something where when you've gone to the school of hard knocks and something, it's like, you know, too much. But when you're bright eyed and bushy tailed about it, you don't know that things aren't possible. And so it's it's easier to make those big strides in something i think when when you have that optimistic outlook and again that's not necessarily an age thing but i think it's sometimes easier when we're a little bit greener in our lives to hold that perspective i agree with that i think such a big word when they, when you say drop out because i think it's such a controversial word in today's society there are always two different voices around that so what what is your personal take on you know the the drop out i think i know the answer but I do you want to ask yeah yeah, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes I like to reframe dropping out as really dropping in. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is someone dropping into? If you're not supposed to be in school for some reason, or it's the, not the right fit for you, or you see that it's too expensive or a very long period of time. I like to say four years of undergrad now, I am 20 years out of being an undergrad. When I went to undergrad, four years didn't seem that long because I didn't have as many choices. I couldn't just open a laptop and start a company. I couldn't connect to people globally. Um, But now, four years must seem like a very long time to a young person because you can do more in a weekend than I could probably do in a whole year um, you know, when I was going to college. And so I think it's about choices and opportunity costs. And I think that Gen Z in particular is more savvy to that these things exist. I also think Gen Z is savvier in terms of seeing a lot of institutions um, as kind of bullshit, if you'll excuse my French. Um, But I I think people's eyes are just open to um, that there are different ways of doing things and we don't have to do something just because our friends are doing it or our parents did it or our grandparents tell us it's a good thing to do. Yeah, Um, yeah. Matter of fact, I am actually dropped out as well to pursue my startup, so I can definitely see uh, where you're yeah. coming there. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and one thing I wanted to add is I didn't, you know, it's funny. Sometimes the train leaves the station, and I'm like, oh wait, where's my point? What was I thinking of? And I, I have a little bit of a cold today, so my brain's a little bit fuzzy. But um, in the dropping in part, it's really about if school isn't the place for you to be, then where is it? Maybe it's in a boot camp. Maybe it's at a job. Maybe it's founding something. Maybe it's working with some friends on a project. Um, and it's about taking that energy and putting it into something positive. I, I remember seeing something that made me kind of, uh, there's a, I, I am very passionate about autonomy and freedom for young people. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing someone tweet something out about how um, their brother was so bored that, you know, he was getting really good at guitar. <laughs> And what I said about that was, that's not boredom, that's actual natural motivation. Mm -hmm. 
And the thing is, is when someone is doing something that we think is unproductive or won't make money or something like that, yeah. we call it boredom, that they did it out of boredom. But to me, that human drive to be so motivated and and focused on something because you love it mm-hmm. is so innate to us. Like, you know, you watch small children, they focus very deeply on things. And I think it's um, our culture has this terrible sort of meme in it, basically mm-hmm. this virus that says, no, you should only focus on things um, that other people tell you to focus on. Like this goes into sort of mimetic theory and Rene Girard stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's important for people to think about what really drives them. I do think it's also important for people to think about how they fit into a capitalist society because we are in one and <laughs> yeah. um, people do need to support themselves. That's probably a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, it's it's really about dropping in and focusing on something that's important to you. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I, I do have a question, which is now related to the yeah. topic. Um, but I do I do want to just make a personal like ask of, a, a question I have in mind because I think sure. a few a, a few decades ago, there's always this debate that you know only Mark Zuckerberg um, can drop out of college because his family is well supported. He was very comfortable, and you know like people with lower income or medium income families. Uh, it's it's much harder yeah. to drop out. Um, do you see that uh, happening yep. in your journey? You know, I mean, I, I do think that there are pros and cons and certainly having a very large safety net of a family or wealth is very helpful. With the people that we work with predominantly, we work with a lot of people who are first generation um, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. We work with a lot of people who don't come from, you know, particularly high socioeconomic status mm-hmm. um, backgrounds as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Um and they have really novel ideas and things that they want to do. And I think, I think investment, the investment landscape is shifting where it is more accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it is something that I think, I think everyone has to make the individual choice for them. I don't think everybody should be a founder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think everybody should be an employee. I don't think everybody should go to school and I don't think everybody should not go to school, but it's about really weighing what is the best option? I, I think one thing that I find very sad is that, um, you know, sometimes young people are kind of sold this, um, this dream that if you go to school, then your life will like lay out in front of you. But to your point about people who maybe come from different backgrounds, um, I've heard of many students who can't get the internship that they want because a lot of internships are basically like, um, you know, indentured servitude and in, in either unpaid or barely paid. And the only people who can do those internships are people who already have money. Mm-hmm. Um, so then those same students who went to school because they thought it was going to put them out ahead, then they're left having to pay a lot of loans. And then you have to find that quick job that's, you know, going to make ends meet. And it just keeps people in a really bad cycle. And so I think that's really important for people to think about if they do go to school, how much are you taking in loans? What is the interest rate? The interest rate on the loan alone just kills people. Um, Even for people who get wonderful jobs. I have friends who are lawyers and surgeons and they're like, oh my gosh, if I had thought about the math differently, I don't know if I would have done this. Yeah. And and, and I think I'm so glad you mentioned about student loans because I think it's it's such a big topic these days. The prices of of going to college, I'm not sure if quadrupled or 10 times, but it was something like that, right? Our parents... Or had a much easier time to go to college paying. They don't really have much debt. But now you come out, yeah. out of college, you have like yeah. 150, 250 loan. 
on back of your head. No, I had $10,000 at in loans at like a 2% interest rate when I came out of school and it that having such a small amount to pay off is what enabled me to be able to build my first tutoring business for example because I didn't have to think, "Oh my god, I have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars a month." Um, like right away, wow. I was able to sort of take my time and, and build something up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I also wanted to talk about, you know, being a young founder, I think a lot of people who dropped out of college, um, all told me they have a common th theme, a common enemy, which I think it's, it's about loneliness, right? Like dropping out of college, you're having an entirely different path from your peers. And sometimes that can get lonely. So um, with the founders that you're backing, or you have worked with, uh, is, that, is that something they have experienced? Yeah, absolutely. We just did a retreat for about 30 of our founders in Colorado. We we went skiing and snowmobiling and did all kinds of, we cooked dinner together. It was amazing. And one of the themes that did come up was how lonely the road is. Um, because, you know, especially being a young founder, you're not just developing professionally, you're developing personally. The changes people go through between like 18 and 30 are huge. There's even a whole field about it. It's called... Um, Oh, what is it called? Oh, emerging adulthood is what it's called. It's about, you know, young adults between 18 and 28. Um, and about 10 years ago, I went to a conference all on this sort of stage of life because I was noticing sort of differences with Teal Fellows that, you know, I wouldn't have maybe expected. Like, you know, mental health was definitely something that we had to focus on in the fellowship. Um, and it, the mental health rates are really alarming for people facing loneliness, anxiety, depression, burnout is something people know a lot more about. And so part of our job with 1517 is to really be both coaches and mentors for people to help normalize their experience. Because if you think, gosh, I'm the only founder who's lonely, or I'm the only founder out there who can't raise money, then you think it's personal. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that it's systemic. What you're going through is systemic to being a founder. It's not personal to you. And so a lot of our time at our retreat this weekend was having really deep conversation about what is it like for you and other people chiming in and saying, gosh, yes, I've had the same experience or I don't know what to do, you know, about X, Y or Z or gosh, I have employees who are older than me and I want to manage them and I want to do a good, good job. But sometimes it's hard or feels awkward or, you know, all these things and we give them the space to talk about it. And then, you know, when we're not in person, because obviously we're only in person sometimes, mm -hmm. um, we've been doing something we call coffee and troubleshooting on Fridays where just have an open Zoom room and any founder can jump in and they help each other out with their problems and what they're facing. And those can be technical problems or they could be personal problems. But again, it's that idea of normalizing. You're just on the founder journey. And every time you hit a bump in the road, it's not personal. It's it's because you're a founder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, Danielle, you just opened my world in, in a way that you know I didn't anticipate. I've, I've, I've spoken with a lot of founders and they say the primary problem their their investors have is that they invest and then they don't look back. They don't help them anymore. And if they have questions, there's no one to turn to. They're not they're not even doing intros. And it sounds like what you guys are building at 1517 is that you actually create a community of founders and you guys are actually supporting them. So tell us more about what you guys can offer to founders. Be back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the investment period with a company is the beginning of a very long-term relationship. And one of the things that is part of, you know, we have a whole diligence process and we have some sort of sort of litmus test that we go through sometimes. And one of them is a personal one. And that litmus test question is, would we want to spend 10 Thanksgiving dinners with this team? Like, are these people we really want to 
be around for a long time. Wow. I was basically getting at mm-hmm. that question. Um, and it's very, it's clarifying for us. It really helps. Um, and I'm pretty confident in being able to say like, you know, for, well, certainly for a hundred percent of our founders, when we back them, we believe that to be true. And I would say for probably like 95% of our founders, that remains to be true. Sometimes you find out things after the investment period that you're like, Ooh, there's some character traits here that need a little fine tuning. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the investment period, you know, we tell our founders, this is a very long-term relationship and we're here to support them. And we always say that we want to be proactive, but not annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had annoying investors at 15, 17. We've had proactive investors at 15, 17. We know what that difference looks like. And for us, what that looks like is doing things like, you know, at a minimum, every other month, we have something like a mock board meeting where we go over, hey, how's it going? Not just for your company, but for you personally, what do you need? Um, what connections need to be made. I think part of what we do best at 1517 is kind of being like switchboard operators and saying, oh, George, you've got to talk to Sarah and then you've got to talk to Bob and then you got to do this. And yeah, we'll make those intros happen. Um, that's a big thing that we do. We always tell our founders that the channel is open 24-7. They can contact us anytime. We have those Friday calls we do, you know, a founder can text us at three in the morning and probably one of us will be awake somewhere in the world and be like, Hey, yeah, I can talk about that today. Another thing we do is we leave time on our calendar every day for emergencies. It's like, okay, cool. Something blew up. Yeah. We can get on the phone today to talk about, we don't need to say, Oh, you know, I'm really booked up for three weeks or, you know, we've taken calls on weekends with founders, holidays, like all of it. Um, So I think accessibility is really important to us. Um, and that community building piece. And and we've had founders where we've actually had to educate them on keeping their other investors in the loop more Mm -hmm. because we had, you know, we have a founder, he's doing really great with his company. We've known him for about six years now. And um, a couple of years ago, we were doing our reviews and all the things we do with founders. And I remember I emailed one of the other investors because they had emailed me about something else. And I was like, oh, cool. This Founders doing so great and they're hiring X and Y and Z and they're doing this and this and this. And the um, the investor wrote back, he's like, oh, I, I'm not getting any of this information. Like, how are you getting it? And I was like, it's because we do reviews. We have it on the calendar for like all of eternity <laughs> that we're going to talk to our founders every so often. We do taper them off over time. Like, you know, our Series B founders don't want to have a call <laughs> every other month because they already have a, a, a real board and, you know, they don't necessarily need the same guidance. Um, but we are available. Uh, and so I had to go to that founder and say, hey, listen, you need to do your updates more regularly because your other investors are feeling like we're in the loop and they're not, which is true. But that's because we're proactive about that. And and to your point, George, a lot of investors aren't. I think part of the reason we're proactive about this is because we saw at the fellowship how important it was to check in with people. And especially for me by nature, I'm a teacher and a mentor just basically by birth. I was the kid who used to stay inside and help other kids with their homework. Um, So I like having those processes in place. So I don't, you know, and when we think to ourselves, Hey, I wonder how someone's doing with something, we text them and then we find out about it or we, you know, do a call um, or we call people on their birthdays and things like that. It's like, we just want to know, we just want people to know that, you know, we are, we're truly there for them for anything. And, Um, not to go on too much, I'll stop after this story, but we've had some amazing, on the personal side, we've had some incredible interactions with founders where 
We had one founder whose company went way off the rails about six years ago. Um, I'm not going to name names, but it was our first company in our portfolio to raise a Series A round. There was a lot of pressure about should we follow on in this company. They were backed by a big name fund that most of us know. Um, and we didn't back the company again because we thought the relationship with the founder wasn't that great. Whenever we would say, hey, let's do one of our reviews, the founder was like crickets, nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever we had a question, the founder was nowhere to be found. The founder was always found when he wanted to raise more money, mm-hmm. whenever he was ready for more cash. And it felt very, for us, especially as 15, 17, it felt very parental. It was like, oh, you only come to mom and dad when you need some cash? Like, <laughs> what's going on? But, uh, but the company sadly went south um, for various reasons. But just two days ago, um, we had a call with that founder. He had He's emailed us over the years and said, hey, I know I put you all through a lot and I hurt a lot of people by not managing my company well and not managing myself well. And I'd like to talk about it. And I told him, I said, we're all ears. We're happy to talk. And we got on a phone call and we just had such an amazing conversation where I know now, you know, when we go to where this person lives, we want to sit down and have coffee and chat and, and keep that line of communication open. Um, So it's just really special to us to see people grow in such a way that, you know, some people really need to mature and they'll come back over time and show us like, hey, I know that I didn't do things the right way or um, insecurity, I think, is rampant in the startup world. And, you know, this person said themselves, I was very insecure when I was running my company and I did a lot of things based on that insecurity. And I just want you to know that I'm really reflecting on it. And, um, you know, I'm a I'm not only a new person, but really trying to right those wrongs. Yeah. And I was floored. I was like, oh my God, this is like the best conversation I've had in years. And it's with a person that I thought we would maybe never talk to again yeah. um, because they didn't have the maturity to have a real conversation about, hey, things are off the rails. They were very much avoiding that. Yeah. Um, so we just sit in this very special place where we get to be part of people's development professionally and personally Um and I, I couldn't think of anything more I'd want to do with my time. Yeah. And I think that's such a fascinating story. I, I think even for me, I had a similar story about myself. When I first started my company, it was actually, I was a little bit mean to people. I think I was asking too much of my fellow you know, co-founders and teammates. And I think part of it is that I just decided I just dropped out. I really, I, and, I, and I feel really insecure about you know, my belongings in the world because by then I didn't really have a stable income. Um, and I just, yeah, a lot of insecurities surrounding myself. And I think that transcended into me being mean to people, even let a few of my friends go. And then a year after wow. that, yeah, and a year after that, I realized that how wrong I have been. And then I actually apologized to those folks and just becoming more wow. humble in the journey. So I can actually relate to yeah. the story. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think humility is such an important quality to foster. In fact, I even, it's funny, I've been called on this a few times. I have it sharpied on my computer when I open it. I, it's the first thing I see. It says humility is greater than speed. Um, and um, I had an investor. He's like, go prove it. And I took a picture from my laptop. <laughs> I was like, here you go. Um, but I think it's one of those things where we work in a, even though we're working in tech, we work in a very human world. And you have to remember that that person you're sending an email to or, um, having a phone call with is having their own experience. You never know what is going on. And I've had people open up to me about just 
insanely personal thing. Sometimes I'll think, oh, I haven't heard from that person in a long time. And I'll even take it personally, like, oh, they don't like me or something like that. And then I'll find out like, you know, a parent or themselves were facing cancer or something like that. And like, oh my gosh, like, okay, this has nothing to do with me. And I need to get out of my own mind sometimes mm-hmm. or, and just keep humble. So I think it's, um, I think a lot of people are very humbled by going down the path of being a founder. Cause it's, it's, it's very difficult. One way that my colleague has started describing it is it's like, this is like the geek Olympics. It's, it's like, okay, we're all trying to do something really hard, really technical, doing it with other people in a certain timeline. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of it is like, I think in the tech world, you know, founders and investors or potential investors, they're not always on the on the same team. I think especially with founders oh, yeah. raising, sometimes they see investors as like adversaries um, playing games, yeah. which I, I personally actually hate that a lot. Um, so what what is yes. your take on this relationship and how can founders and investors do better? You know, I think um, with 15, 17, we do a whole onboarding call with our founders to sort of set expectations to begin. And in fact, we have a whole article on our website about it. Um, <coughs> But I think um, I think investors would do better to own their own bias. Mm-hmm. It's like my bias, at the end of the day, the way I get judged for my work is by having mathematical numbers on my books that are marked up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, we had our onboarding conversation with our Fusion founder the other day. And I said, listen, some of your investors aren't going to tell you how a VC fund works and what their model is. And they might push you to do things like raise more capital sooner because what they really want is not for you to have more capital. They just want the markup on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would rather see your markup take longer and be more valid and more real. And you have more ownership of your company and us to be in this for the long haul, than have a quick markup on a book and then have it go South in a year because it wasn't the right strategic move for the company. Um, I, and I just think it would be helpful if, investors would be clearer. I think a lot of founders don't really understand how VC works because mm-hmm. it's um, it's been, you know, uh, very opaque for a long time. And I think when you can tell people like, hey, here's how it works. Here's the pressures that your investors are facing. Um, we can all sort of work together to make a better ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, you know, with 1517, we always tell founders we are extremely patient. And we're never going to push you. We're going to push you to be. We're going to push you towards being a venture scalable startup because that's what we all signed up to do. Mm -hmm. But if you decide that that's not what your company is supposed to be, we're going to say, okay, cool. Hands off. Like we're not going to coach you in that direction anymore because that's not what you want to do. And to us at 1517, especially because we work with young people, it is way more important to me sort of like, psychologically mm-hmm. that people get onto whatever path they're supposed to be on. You know, we had a, a founder whose company was doing okay, but not great. Um, and they were also a musician and now they like basically do more music full time. And I'm thrilled. I'm like, good. You got on the path you're supposed to be on. Yes. Your company was not a success for us, but not a hundred percent of our companies aren't supposed to be a success. And if I can say that every founder we work with has found the thing they're supposed to do, whether it's that company or the next thing, to me, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an astonishing story. And I, and I think that's also reflected upon like your character, Danielle. I think you're already known as being super, super friendly and helpful, even like with how we met. Yep. 
Uh, I think I just code email you or sent you a code intro. And then you told me why, you know, like at the time it wasn't the right, like we weren't the right fit at the time. But what you did after was you created, I think a 20 minute loom video walking through <laughs> my deck and telling me exactly how, what you think of the deck upon reading it and giving me the feedback. And, and I just, I'm just yeah. so astonished because you were very upfront with me that right now we're not a fit, my first startup and, and, and 15, 17, but you still help me anyways. Uh, is that, is that something you do all the time with other founders? Maybe not all the time because I, I can't always do it 100 percent of the time. And eventually, I think I'm gonna need to. I'm like, oh no, the sun is <laughs> is encroaching on us here. But um, I try to do it a lot. You know, I I one of my sort of mantras is add value, um, and I do try to leave someone with something tangible. So it's not just like, oh, here's your no. It's like, okay, here's an actionable. And a lot of times, our no's at 15, 17 is more like a just not right now. Mm -hmm. Like we can't get comfortable where things are at. And sometimes it does have to do with the space itself. I, I think we've become much more comfortable on our team talking about that. Sometimes what someone's working on, it's just not our jam. Mm -hmm. It's like, maybe it's your jam. And it's just not our jam. And it's like, I like classical. You like, you know, I don't know, rock and roll. I like rock and roll too. <laughs> but, um, but it's like, sometimes you just, there isn't like a certain click there. And, um, and it's important to, say that. I think a lot of investor like feedback, the real feedback is like, hey, we just couldn't get conviction on this. And that's the real, real feedback. Instead, sometimes I see people go on all these rationalizations about why they don't think the market size is big enough or why it won't work for this reason. And I don't think that's really that helpful to people mm -hmm. um, because you just never know where a company is going to go. Yeah. Totally, totally. And, and I'm going to attempt to move my spot. I'm going to take you with me, but. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, yeah. So also, I guess I have one of the questions. Uh, I think, Danielle, I wanted to talk about more about your journey to starting the 1517 fund. So when when is the time where you realize that, oh, now I wanted to start an venture capital fund? Because I know before that you're working on TO Fellowship, which is, I think, kind yep. of entirely different thing. But yeah. Yes. So they are entirely different, but there are similarities as well. Um, Michael and I were running the Teal Fellowship from 2010 to 2015. And at one point, I mean, it was just this huge wake-up call for us. Um, Ritesh had launched Oil Rooms. Dylan had launched um, Figma. Mm -hmm. um, Laura Deming had launched her Longevity Fund. Um Austin was just getting Luminar started uh, and Vitalik had launched Ethereum. And we were kind of like, wow, <laughs> we are not too bad at this. Like there is something really working here. Um, and one of the things that we saw, you know, and is that the investor community was not great to work with. Mm -hmm. When we would email investors and say, you know, me with my teacher background saying to them, hey, will you take a pitch call? Will you give them feedback? Will you look at their deck and give them feedback? The response I got was like, oh, they're there, dear. That's that nice little nonprofit program you have, but we don't really do charity work. And I was like, oh, these people, like, they're so intolerable. Like, they just, ah, I don't even like going to investor events. Like, I like pre-seed investors. Most of the pre-seed investors I meet are super humble, but a lot of other investors, mm -hmm. I I would rather not spend really any time. With. I spend a lot of time with founders and very little time with other investors. Okay. Um but we saw that there was a mismatch and that how hard it was for young founders to um, 
be able to garner capital in the market. And so to us, we said, hey, there's like a missing piece here and maybe we can fill that. Mm -hmm. And so we took this idea to Peter um, in 2015 and we said, hey, we want to start basically a fellowship 2.0, but as a venture fund. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't want to just exclusively back Teal Fellows because even in the applicant pool, we were meeting all these extraordinary people and we wanted more ways to work with them. And as generous as the Teal Foundation is, it's still only about 20 people per year that they back. And we thought we could really expand and scale this and grow it. Peter got super excited in this meeting. We had no idea how much money to raise. I remember we were like, well, maybe we should raise $10 million. Like, and he was like, you should definitely raise 15 and count me in for three. And we were like, <laughs> what? Like, we were literally pitching him to leave our job not to get money from him. And we walked out of that meeting with an anchor investor in our fund. And then both Michael and I looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, we need, we need to go, <laughs> we need to go raise 17 million more dollars now. <laughs> so we went out there and we knocked on lots of doors of different people we knew and said, hey, we're starting this venture fund to back people who are kind of overlooked and off the beaten path and who don't have degrees and you know, we found 30 investors who believed in what we did. And when I think about what I knew then versus what I know now, seven years later, I am just so blessed that they came into our lives because it's like, you know, yeah, sure. I was calling myself a general partner, 1517, but I was even scared to call myself an investor. Like when I was out in public and stuff, it's like, I don't feel like an investor. This doesn't seem I, like, I don't really know what I'm doing yet. There's probably tons of imposter syndrome going on. Um, you know, but we grew into the roles that we have. And I feel very confident talking about being an investor now. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how we got started seven years ago. It's crazy to think that we've been doing 15, 17 now longer than we were running the fellowship. Like for a long time, it was the opposite where we had done the fellowship longer. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot to learn about working with companies rather than just with individuals. But I think our time at the fellowship really um, made us very good at what we do at 15, 17. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think part of the, you know, like, the, like what you said earlier, Danielle, is like a lot of founders actually think it is just super easy for investors to raise around to raise a fund it is super easy i think as you said a lot of founders don't even actually know how the process works and i think you had a really humble journey and, and maybe some could say you know a little bit hard beginning to start the 1517 fund can you share a little bit more about what was it like in the early days of the fund and trying to build it up yeah absolutely i'm gonna pause for one second and get some water because okay. awesome. i'm gonna awesome. all over the place but I, will, I will be right back time. All right. I think I'm ready again. Awesome. I've got a nice cup of water. Awesome. Here. Um, yeah. A couple of stories from when we started 1517 and the challenges. Mm -hmm. Yep. Correct. All right, sure. Oh, no, absolutely. There were, there were many. Um, one of the challenges was just like when you're a founder, you get feedback from LPs, limited partners who are investors in a fund mm -hmm. that may or may not be applicable to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so some people will say, oh, you should raise a smaller fund. You should raise a larger fund. Um, we went to a conference and presented our work and everyone at the conference said, you should be a nonprofit. Oh. We were like, what? <laughs> like, we're already incorporated. Like, we're, 
1517 management company. We're going to have all these funds. People are like, no, 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 this should be a nonprofit, especially working with young people. This is a, this is a charitable thing. And we're like, okay, you're not getting it. <laughs> um, so sometimes we would have tough people sort of, you know, infantilize what we were doing because we work with young people. Um, and, and we find that, you know, is something, something that we've seen over time is just people who consider themselves like older adults often infantilize young people. And so they were infantilizing our work as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, One crazy thing that happened in the beginning was we had one investor who said, and I have to, I wish I could remember who I'm going to have to talk to Michael about this of like, who told us we had to do that. One investor said, how do you know these people will take a check from you? And we were like, well, (laughs) I mean, one, there aren't that many pre-seed investors out there. And two, we've known most of these. Like we had something like eight companies that we wanted to back right away with 1517. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, hold on one second. Um, so we had all these companies we wanted to back. And someone said, how do you know these companies will take money from you? And we're like, because they told us. Like, I, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to tell you. And this investor said, show me. And we didn't have the fundraised yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what they wanted us to do is take money and put it into some companies. Mm-hmm. And so Michael and I had about $150,000 between both of us. We cobbled it together and we invested in two of our companies. Wow. And so then we went back to that investor and we said, okay, we've made two investments in two companies. It's called warehousing a deal when maybe a different entity mm-hmm. makes the investment and then you pull it into the fund later. Okay. Um, one of those companies is doing very well. One of them went under. Mm-hmm. And so had we not been able to raise the fund, maybe we'd be doing pretty well just <laughs> off that investment. But we didn't know at the time we were like, oh, my God, like we may be just flushing one hundred fifty thousand dollars down the toilet mm-hmm. because we don't even know if we're going to raise our fund. Mm-hmm. Like we just have to take this risk and do it. Yeah. Um, you know, in addition, there was a lot to learn in terms of how do we think about teams and companies and you know, we had advisors early on that we worked with that was very helpful. Um, you know, but I think especially with that first fund, a lot of our work was really building the muscle of being an investor and building the confidence to know that we were building something great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I can say, oh, yeah, we made some great decisions then. Um, but I think what we really did was we we laid out processes that really work that we do to this day. Um, but yeah, lots of challenges with fundraising and raising our second fund was really humbling mm-hmm. where I thought, oh, the second fund is all about showing people that you can do the work of being an investor. It's not about returns yet. Wrong. Everybody wants to see your returns. Wow. And people were like, well, that's nice that you have Luminar and you have Loom. We hadn't actually returned capital yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did return capital from Luminar um, about six months ago or so. Um but we hadn't at that point. And so people were like, well, these numbers are not actualized. And we we're like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> what do people want from us? We set out to raise $40 million. We could only raise 25. Um, and just like with startups, with investors, there's always this like, if you're not bigger than the last fund, something's wrong optics. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it took a long time to raise that second fund. Um, so that was very challenging and we learned a lot there as well. Yeah. And I think it's a, such a humbling journey because I think like these days with the venture market, I think a lot of VCs like to talk about themselves and their success story. And I think, Danielle, you come in 
here yeah. sharing your 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 you know feedback your humble journey and even sharing that your second yeah. fund is smaller than the first one which actually i think people like me gives you more respect because you actually are on founder's side it sounds like you like you really mm-hmm. understand what it's yeah, like we've gotten beaten down <laughs> we're like whoa this is tough yeah totally totally so uh can i also just ask uh, out of curiosity because i want to know like what is a, a typical day like for a general partner like yourself uh, what does a typical day look like sure. for you yeah i i'm gonna take a quick peek at my calendar and sort of see here <laughs> what was my typical day today um okay so this morning, I had a call with a potential investor in Fund 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a really nice call. Then we had a pitch meeting with a potential new company where we all got on a Zoom together and the whole team took the pitch meeting to learn about this space company. Okay. Then in the afternoon, I had another... Um, actually, no, the afternoon. What am I talking about? This is, this is 10 o'clock now, <laughs> 10 a.m. We had another meeting with a fund of funds uh, to talk about fund three. Then we had a review with one of our teams thereafter. Then I ate some lunch and hung out with my cats. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have our team block I talked about every day, which is both for emergencies and stuff that comes up for our team. Um, So we met on our team block today to talk about some strategy we needed to do um, for a couple investments this week. Mm-hmm. Then I, what did I do? I did some ops work today too, in terms of, um, we announced an event that we're going to do. Okay. Um, hopefully if, if you did not get an email about this event, let me know and I will make sure you get one, but we're going to do a summit in July. So we sent out an email about that and I, I didn't edit on that. Wow. Um, I also did a lot of logistical cat herding maneuvers uh, on our fund three raise where I have to ping people and say, hey, we haven't gotten your docs yet. We need this doc. I think a lot of what what people don't realize is that there's a lot of um, paperwork and logistics for running a fund. It's like, you know, I want to get our Q4 docs out. We haven't done that yet. We need to do that. Oh, I did tons of bills today. I paid <laughs> lots. I've got this like little card of like to do's. It's like, oh, yeah, paid a bunch of bills today. That was good because we were we owed our auditing firm a lot of money. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, there goes $26,000 out the door. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, there's. it's always a mix of operations and working with people. And then, you know, that was like a I'm at home day. And then there's a lot of time that we travel and we meet people. Um, I was just in Boston and spur of the moment I put out on Twitter like, hey, if anyone wants to meet at the Museum of Fine Arts, we're going to do a founder art walk. Or, you know, <laughs> we're just going to tour ourselves. There's no... We don't get any special treatment. No curator is going to come down. I mean, that would have been cool if I had arranged it. But I just said, hey, let's meet. And I expected about four people to show up. We had 12 people show up. It was great. We walked through this museum. And I love connecting people and getting them to talk to each other. So that was wonderful. Um, And, and yeah, sometimes my day is like going – you know, to San Mateo, which is about 45 minutes away from here and visiting a founder Mm -hmm. and their company and seeing what their workshop space looks like. I love visiting founders where they work. You learn way more that way than just sitting in an office. I think that's one thing that makes us good at what we do is we leave the office a lot, even with COVID. Um, We are, we have been doing in-person events and meeting people and, you know, in the safest way we can, but 
we're also not going to say, oh, I'm just going to do Zoom for, for all of eternity. Yeah. I've met certain investors recently who are like, I still haven't met anyone in person. And I'm like, and you're proud of that? Like, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, um, totally, totally. So, so that, that's a little glimpse into the day day in the life. Yeah, and that's super, super interesting to hear about the day uh, from VC's life. So I guess my last yeah. question would be, what is the next for 1517 for the next, let's say, three to five years or even five to 10 years? What is your vision? I love that you asked that. So one of the things we've been talking about is, you know, we started seven years ago as a single fund. Then we became a firm because we had multiple funds. And now we're really thinking about what does it mean for 1517 to become an institution? And that just like an institution just means something even like sort of like as an entity, you have a life that gets grown and taken on. And so what does it mean for 1517 to become an institution is a question we've had for maybe eight months now. And we're coming to some good thoughts on this. And one of the thoughts is that what we are is an institution because we don't really like VC institutions where, you know, 1517 is never going to have a formal scout program. Um, you know, we don't, <laughs> we don't like the title associate. Like it's like, oh, gag me. I, I agree with that. I don't like it. <laughs> so, but we're also, you know, we're not like a college either. Um, so what we've decided is that what we are is an anti-establishment educational institution and how we do what we do happens to be through venture capital. Um, and so we're looking forward to working with people, writing bigger checks into their companies, doing more of these R&D uh, investments. We're looking at expanding our grants that we do for people. We usually do a thousand dollar grant, but we're looking into mm -hmm. what can we do to maybe increase it. You know, can we somehow do something like a $10,000 grant into a team? Um, mm -hmm. We want to, you know, in 10 years, we would love it if like a majority of high school students knew that, oh, yeah, there's that 1517 thing out there. And I could I could check that out if I want to do something different. Um, mm -hmm. That would be that would be a really great goal. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear about that, because I, I, I know even from today's conversation, it sounds like what you guys are doing, but not just a venture fund. You're not just backing people. You're creating a community. You're bringing mm -hmm. your experience from TO Fellowship, from your previous educational experience to really empower and help founders. And I just want every other founders out there listening to this podcast to really understand that having an investor who backs you and truly believes you, how important it is. And I think, Danielle, you have really shown that you and the 1517 Fund is an institution that really backs and cares about young founders. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, George. This was super fun. Thank you. Take a talk soon. Bye. All right. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.com to join us on Discord.